it's very easy to wander into the territory of, well, like, you know, it's a beautiful space and this is a perk and that's how we think about space. It's like you come in and it's a perk for your employees. The reality is that most folks, as they come back to the workplace, just want to do great work. They're not trying to come back for beanbags. You know, they're not coming back for like <laughs> baristas. They're coming back because they want to be able to do great work. And and that means that the focus of uh, space design, of, of course, should be aesthetically pleasing because that is a part of or conducive to creating the environment or experience that folks need to be able to do great work. But thinking about the space as a how do we drive utility, usefulness, productivity, function, hygge, you know, whatever the term is that you want to apply. And that's extremely exciting. And what's crazy is the same architects and designers who built spaces that were inefficient and didn't work have been yelling about this for years. Stop thinking about us as just folks who are designing beautiful spaces. Start thinking about us as helping you create hyper-productive, super useful, lovely places to be in. And for the first time in history, heads of real estate, heads of portfolios, heads of workplace have, have the um, cultural mandate, financial mandate, and so forth, and autonomy to actually do that. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I'm excited to have Andrew Farrow with me today, who is the co-founder and CEO of Density. Density is a real-time platform for measuring how people use buildings. They've built an incredible device that measures how we use space in the largest asset class in the world, which is real estate. We still have not figured out a great way to measure the activity and how we use space. And you'll find out more in this episode, but almost 48% of office space that is built and paid for, meaning it's leased, goes unused. So there's a huge opportunity. We have a incredible just discussion about the office, how their product works and what it's solving and what that could mean for the future of real estate. You know, we don't have a a supply problem. We have a usage and efficiency problem, and they are out to tackle a really cool problem and an opportunity for for a lot of growth within the industry. So, thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey and enjoy today's episode. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. I'm pumped to uh, chat with you today. Glad to be here. Can we just start with um, a little bit about your background and kind of what led you to your current role at Density? Sure. So I um, I used to run a consulting company, essentially um, web application and mobile app application development company called Rounded. And the the founders of of that, of which there were uh, six of us, would always work on side projects. So we would use the cash from like large projects that we were doing with uh, enterprise clients, building custom software to pay for the random cool stuff that we were excited to work on. Um, and we built everything from gesture controlled drones, which was super cool. You could like put your hand over a harmonica sized device and like move your hand and it would, it would manipulate a drone flying five feet away from you um, in real time. It was awesome to like micro social networks and a whole bunch of other things. And density was the seventh side project and it came out of pure frustration uh, with the lines at a local coffee shop called Cafe Coupal. We, we just wanted to know how busy our favorite coffee shop was without having to wander through three feet of snow and, you know, negative 20 with a wind chill, uh, upstate New York weather only to hit a 20 minute line. So mostly out of laziness, I'm in the business of counting people. Yeah. When you say you wanted to know how busy it was, like, what did you want to know? Like how many people were just going to be there when you guys usually arrived or how'd you think about that? We just didn't want to have to wait in line uh, was sort of the original premise. But, you know, in order to achieve that, you had to figure out how many humans were there in the first place um, and perhaps even their rate of entry. But we would be happy with just knowing an approximation of the weather, you know, I mean, the, the functional equivalent of an API for, for people instead of an API for the weather. So before we get into what density does, um, and you might have just answered the question when I was doing some research for this episode, 
I read that you have six co-founders and you just mentioned kind of six guys that you worked on side projects with. I've never heard of a company with six co-founders. Can you just, had y'all been working together for a long time and just kept the band together to start this company? Yeah. So, uh, six co-founders, I think maybe my only lament about having six co-founders is that we're all, we're all white men, um, which is probably the most disappointing part of, uh, of, of that sort of founding story. Um, but everything else I'm extremely proud of, you know, six co-founders in the beginning, we, it was the same six folks at rounded, you know, we had always sort of done things that way. And I've been working with the same group of folks for the last 10 years now, if you include the consulting organization rounded and then the seven years of density. And what's remarkable is that in the beginning, having six co-founders is very much a liability in a startup, particularly a venture-backed startup. But as the years pass, it becomes a remarkable advantage because you have these cultural, sort of these people that that uh, promulgate the culture and values that we we care about without that needing to be coming from like one or two folks. Um, and so what was originally a liability has, has become one of our, our, our greatest strengths. Can you give it just some color as to what all six of y'all do and how y'all are able to kind of stay out of each other's way? Yeah. So, um, we have two folks, you know, Ben Redfield was a, a full stack engineer, um, spent a lot of time on the front end. So, uh, really remarkable. He was actually the, the person that built the system that allowed us to, to do the drone control, which was, you know, truly just kind of fun. Um, designer, Rob Grazioli, um, just a spectacular interface design, but very good at sort of systems design. Um, and also, uh, a developer, so could, could build Jordan Messina, um, you know, also uh, a developer, predominantly backend, so less front end stuff and sort of pixel pushing, but much more, you know, how do we build the logic around a system? Has an incredible nose for working on the right problems um, and ignoring the rest. He actually, we often call him a grumpy Gus because he will get frustrated with things that don't matter, in his opinion. Brian Weinrich, who is our, our, our VP of engineering and uh, on the executive team, he's was pre-med and got interested in technology and he's his his superpower i think is his impatience his technical impatience he, he is capable of moving at a speed and doing so many different jobs that he he's really earned uh the respect of you know the entire technical organization and then steve on deke is very much kind of at the cultural heart of density um he was a lawyer by training but i'd, I'd say he would never label himself a product designer, but he is, he is an exceptional, I think, designer at heart and dealt with a lot of our, like, uh, you know, he's a board member for a while and dealt with a lot of our fundraising sort of nuances. Um, he, he's truly exceptional. So a whole bunch of really, really great cast of characters. And then me, you know, I, I, they tolerate me, <laughs> but, but I, but I, you know, I, um, you know, I, I think what was cool is that nobody in, particular was obviously at odds with one another we were able to kind of collectively it was a founding group you know it, it didn't feel like it was a you know one one hero or or another it's awesome all right so y'all have this side project you're checking out how dense the the coffee shop is when was the moment that it was okay we need to turn this into a full-time uh business I think there was a moment where we realized this just simply needed to exist in the world, which preceded the moment where we said this needs to be a business. It needing to be a business was the way by which we felt we could manifest it in the world. Um, but there was this moment, so the, the co-founders not only worked together, but also had an apartment um, above above a bar called the Saltine Warrior. And um, I remember it was maybe 11 o'clock at night and Brian was trying to get a, a prototype system to count uh, the number of phones in a space. So today we don't use the technology I'm about to describe, but uh, back then we were prototyping with something called Mac address tracking, which would essentially pick up on small probe requests from your smartphone or from other devices that have a Wi-Fi antenna. It's how your router works. Uh, your router is picking up on probe requests and it's how you automatically connect to known networks. So like when you go home, it like automatically connects to your, your network. Well, what's happening is a handshake 
between your phone or your device, you know, an Apple Watch, for instance, and your home Wi-Fi router. So what you can do is you can train a router to use those to to count the the number of unique Mac IDs or Wi-Fi antenna IDs as a phone arrives. And you can use that as a proxy for counting the number of people nearby. It's not going to be perfect, but it'll give you some sense of how many folks are nearby if they're carrying their phone. Now, there's a whole bunch of gotchas with this technology. It is horribly inaccurate, we've since <laughs> learned. But this is 2013, so we're, you know, we're sort of at the bleeding edge of, <laughs> of uh, people sensing um, at this point. So Brian's trying to get this thing, this, he's trying to build a little router that'll count the number of phones nearby in the room. And there's about six phones in the room in the apartment. It's 11 o'clock at night. He's got this little Raspberry Pi with two TP links, two little antennas attached to the USB ports. And he finally gets the thing working and in his terminal. He sees, he's sort of expecting to see like six devices. And instead he sees like 115 unique Mac IDs. And he takes his laptop and he throws it down. And he's like, I don't know what's going on. This thing's broken. I can't seem to figure it out. And he sits back, crosses his arms and sits there quietly for a minute or two. And then all of a sudden, this smile crawls across his face and he goes, oh my God, it's the bar. We, we had accidentally counted 115 people uh, three floors down. And I remember what followed was one of the most consequential conversations uh, of my life, short of meeting my wife, Dory, um, which is uh, if you could know how many humans are in a space in a bar without knowing, without having to be there, then why not for a grocery store? Uh, why not for a coffee shop, which was the original problem? And if you can know how many humans are in all three of those spaces, why not for an entire city? So the real question be- becomes, uh, would New York find it useful if it knew how it was used? And we think that the answer is objectively yes, of course it would. Not only would it find it, uh, it useful to know how it's used, it would redesign itself. It would remake itself most likely. And whatever is true for New York is probably true for every major city in the world. Paris, Tokyo, Denver, San Francisco. And so the real problem, it's four o'clock in the morning, we're like super fired up. So the real problem we realize is not technology. Although the technology is a very hard problem. The real fundamental problem is distribution. How do you get an intelligent device that understands how humans use space uh, without invading privacy into every relevant room in the world? Because if you can achieve that, you earn the right to remake it. And so the, the, the goal becomes essentially all built space. The goal becomes uh, what is effectively the surface of the earth. And that is so insane as to be uh, almost preposterous. But if you could, but, but it just, it's like, but the logic was there, you know? And so if the logic is sound, then we should go do this. And it's the reason why we spent three plus years just working on the technology. It's because we knew that on the other end of this, there's a whole bunch of unmeasured space and it should be measured. There's no other system. There's no other asset class in the world whose, whose performance is unmeasured, but whose value is this large. It's a $280 trillion asset class and nobody knows how it's used. And when you say we don't know how it's used, and and I mean maybe it's a loaded question that we can get into in a bit. What are the types of things that cities or building owners would want to know about that's so important that this become its own thing that you've now put your life behind? Like, what does New York need to know about itself that it's not knowing now? Well, for starters. Um, in the U.S., let's start with just office space, which is where our primary market is today, uh, or the workplace, which is where our primary market is today. In the U.S., there's 10.9 billion square feet of leased or owned and occupied office space. So that means signed leases, owned buildings, I show up to work each day. Uh, 10.9 billion square feet. 41% of that is vacant, but paid for. And when I say vacant, I mean the rooms, you know, the conference room that you walk past, nobody in it, the workstations that don't have anybody sitting there. 41% of office space doesn't have anybody in it, but we're paying for it anyway. And what's crazy is that the numbers are consistent internationally. So, so that, that 41% in the U.S. is worth about a trillion dollars. So um, internationally, the, 
humans are universally bad at using space, it turns out. So Japan is 46% wasted but paid for. Australia is something like 39% wasted but paid for. Uh, you go to Europe and it's, uh, it's, it's something like uh, 42% wasted but paid for. China is the only one that is apparently succeeding at 27% wasted but paid for. But I'm dubious of the numbers coming out of China. So the, the broader point is that in a single section of, of the built world, office space, utilization is at peak utilization, <laughs> is at extremely uh, s- small numbers. Um, waste is substantial. And the thing that's remarkable about those numbers is that they all came, if you look at the bottom of the graph, uh, and I can share this, this sort of document, but at the bottom of the graph, there's a footnote that says, note, figures based on CBRE observations. The state of the art is a person with a clipboard doing point-in-time anecdotal measurement. And, you know, what is Peter Drucker, what's Peter Drucker's like comment? Like, um, you, you can't manage what you don't measure. Like, I mean, we're talking about the largest asset class in the world, one of the largest asset classes in the world. And the way that we measure its performance is a grad student from <laughs> architecture showing up and wandering around saying that room, doing what's called bed checks. You know, it's like that room was used twice today and 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 like providing a, a report for some of the largest companies in the world. We're talking the Fortune 10 that is like nine pages long. It's in a PDF. It costs a million dollars. And it's essentially a, a summary of anecdotal findings done at five-day increments four times a year, once a quarter. And that is how real estate strategy is, is, is uh, implemented. And I think that that's insane. Like, I think that that is actually the definition of nuts. God, that is, and and you know what? Being in the industry, it's surprising, but it's not. Real estate has been so antiquated and so far behind in developing that. Um, on one end, it's fascinating, and it just is another testament to how much room we have to grow within the industry. So we don't have a real estate problem; we have an efficiency problem. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm surprised at how well we've done without measurement. I mean. If you think about the quality of space design at the highest end these days, it's pretty it's pretty awesome. But that doesn't remove the fact that we're doing it based on an architect's best guess. You know, I mean, we have been building buildings for thousands of years without knowing how they get used with essentially no feedback loop. And when you close that feedback loop, I mean, we're talking about bringing A-B testing to the physical world. You know, it, it, it is going to fundamentally change how buildings... So when I say re- New York will remake itself, I, I mean that literally. Like, I, we are watching organizations realize that a space that is designed for a conference room was used, had utilization rates of, of peak utilization rates of 12%, changing that conference room into a lounge space and then watching utilization overnight change to 200, go up by 246%. Like that is the future of space planning. You know, there's another organization that had a, you know, they did a very small deployment, you know, call it 40 or $50,000. And they noticed that their busiest moment inside of a, a headquarters was 37% utilized. The customer was in negotiations to sign a five-year lease at a million dollars a year uh, to bring in the 800 new employees that they were about to, to, to hire, realized that he could fit all of them in the existing headquarters that was at 37% utilized, went to the global COO and said, hey, I'm going to walk from this lease and save us $5 million. And they said, do you trust the data? And you know, the answer is uh, yes. And they, they did. Now, what, what that means, and, I, and I, don't, I don't mean that just in a business sense, but like what that means is that that is a building that remains on the market for the next leaseor, if that's the right term. I think it's leaseor or leasee, I don't know. And if they sign for that building, that means the building that they were planning to get or the space they were planning to get remains on the market for the next person. And if you follow that to its logical conclusion, that means one less building built um, all the way down the line. And if, if, if you look at the numbers of net new buildings each day, it's, it's uh, we are, yesterday, the world added 13,370 new buildings. Today, we're going to add 13,370 new buildings, and tomorrow, we're going to do the same thing. In, by 2030, we're going to be adding approximately 16,000 new buildings every day. And 
I, I'm not saying like I'm not the wasted space guy. Like I, I'm not trying to say, hey, we're wasting all this space. Like throw your. I'm just saying, look, if you've got a big atrium where you want to waste space, cool, do it. But at least know that you are. You know what I mean? Like know that you are purposefully designing space that that allows 2,000 square feet per person because that is the intent of the space as opposed to you know one customer that we were working with who their target was 300 their target was 150 square feet per head they thought they were they knew they were underperforming and thought that their actual actuals were about 300 to 350 square feet per head when they measured it they found out that they were at like 1950 square feet per employee they were at like a three bedroom san francisco apartment <laughs> per employee this is a, this is an organization that has over 100 million square feet of space. So so it's just like I think the numbers are so large as to be like, uh, I don't know that we can really worry about it. You know, that that's sort of like it's just it's such a big problem. I don't know, like let's just keep doing. But the pandemic has accelerated the urgency and um what used to be sort of a uh, a relatively small but very but, but growing group of folks who were thinking about modernizing buildings and actually measuring their performance, which they've been doing for the last five years, is now pretty much anyone who runs space of any kind is saying, well, do we have any idea how much is actually being used? Because right now everybody's home and I'm at less than 1% utilized. As I'm sitting here thinking about it and I'm thinking about the architect's planning process, it's usually like, hey, how many employees do you have? And they just kind of assume everybody's going to get a desk and then that many employees means that many conference rooms and they just kind of work formulaic. And that's why you have these huge wastes. And then as I think about it, moving to the developers, you know, developers get larger fees, the larger their projects are like everybody and even architects, I think get paid on like the total square footage of their plans. It's like five bucks a foot or 10 bucks a foot. Like on the on the owner developer side, it's almost incentivized to keep building much bigger spaces. And when you have tenants that kind of don't know, you know, they have no data to to dispute anything they're looking at, you can see how this becomes a problem that gets out of hand pretty quickly. You know, I think for for all of its foibles, you know, WeWork was a really good example of y- you can generate a lot of revenue without necessarily needing to just build lots more space. You know, they, they put a lot of folks into uh, these buildings. I, I think there's an opportunity, though, to um, th- think of buildings as, as true infrastructure and to say this is a valuable asset whose performance we should measure, number one, but two, whose primary purpose is to serve the folks that are in it. You know, like, instead of just building... I was I was talking to uh, someone from uh, T T3, three advisors yesterday, and uh, he or this this other sort of panelist was making a really good point, um, essentially arguing that uh, you know historically we would get so wrapped up in the design of a space, you know, the visual aesthetic of a space, um, that th- that one of the the uh, highest awarded spaces that he'd ever been involved with, and he wouldn't mention which one it was, lauded by every critic. You know, considered to be one of the most beautiful, most well-architected spaces um, of that particular year, was 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 so broken from an actual use standpoint. He made the comment that people voted with their feet and didn't use the space we designed, and it was extremely expensive. You know, I mean, this is like a lot of investment, and they just simply didn't use it. So the question is, okay, it won all these design awards, but did it serve its purpose? And I think that historically, when when we don't all realize because of a pandemic that physical space is this very important thing that we need to maybe be a bit more conscious about its its use, it's very easy to wander into the territory of, well, like, you know, it's a beautiful space and this is a perk and that's how we think about space. It's like you come in and it's a perk for your employees. The reality is that most folks, as they come back to the workplace, just want to do great work. They're not trying to come back for beanbags. You know, they're not coming back for like... <laughs> baristas. They're coming back because they want to be able to do great work. And, and that means that the focus of uh, space design, of, of course, should be aesthetically pleasing because that is a part of or conducive to creating the environment or experience that folks need to be able to do great work. But thinking about the space as a, as a um, how do we drive utility, usefulness, productivity, function, huga, you know, whatever the term is that you want to apply, 
And that's extremely exciting. And what's crazy is the same architects and designers who built spaces that were inefficient and didn't work have been yelling about this for years. Stop thinking about us as just folks who are uh, designing beautiful spaces. Start thinking about us as helping you create hyper-productive, super useful, lovely places to be in. And for the first time in history, in my opinion, at least at this scale, heads of real estate, heads of portfolios, heads of workplace have the um, cultural mandate, financial mandate, and so forth, uh, and autonomy to actually do that. Uh, so I'm, I'm extremely excited. And I, and I say that uh, as a participant of the industry, for sure, but even irrespective of that, I'm just really excited to see what humans decide to build. Yep. Well, let's take one step back and, and describe what density has built to tackle this massive problem. And then we'll get back to the conversation that we were just having on how industry participants are going to use it and the data that's being generated from y'all's products. Sure. Uh, at density, we build systems that help turn physical space into analytics. What that means practically is that we build sensors that measure anonymously count people into space. So um, as you visit a building or a floor um, or, or a conference room, um, we can know the real-time occupancy of that space, uh, dwell time, utilization, and so forth relative to your target capacity. Um, and then we also build this, this other really cool sensor that is um, an open area sort of radar-based system that can measure unbounded space. So sort of if you can think like a wireless access point that's capable of understanding human behavior beneath it. And we design these systems, both the hardware and the software, but uh, we design these systems to be anonymous at source, meaning we don't know gender, age, or ethnicity. They have very high degrees of precision and accuracy, and it allows us to route that data into pieces of software that that uh, you know we, we call portfolio, which is sort of measuring how one building, if you're running a really large portfolio, how one building is performing next to all of your other buildings. It's essentially a benchmarking tool. And uh, workplace, density workplace, which is um, essentially a, a, a dashboard for what is happening at the building or floor level or space level. And then we work predominantly with large uh, organizations, medium-sized and large organizations who uh, have hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of square feet of space to measure utilization. So can you can you give a little more color as to the types of data that are coming that that you're that you would see on the on the dashboard? I imagine traffic's one of them, but like is it where they're coming from? Like what what would I know? Sure. So as people return to office, we have uh, something called a safe display. So you can set a maximum safe capacity of say forty percent or twenty five percent. And then density will automatically m monitor the real-time occupancy inside that space. And then on a television, it'll say go or wait, and it'll tell you the number of occupants inside the space. Other analytics that'll say, uh, you know, there's an organization that learned that 93%, so all of their conference rooms were in use 93% of the day, of the workday. 83% of that time, it was uh, no greater than two people. And these were all conference room designed conference rooms designed for 12. 50% of the, that time was no greater than one. And so, you know, the organization was able to very quickly understand that, you know, as we design future space, offices are very important for folks or conference rooms are very important for folks, but they don't necessarily need to be large collaboration areas. And then, you know, I'd say the other thing that's really important is that I think a lot of people forget about the occupant when they think about space measurement. You know, they've they measure the data and they provide it to the real estate team or the workplace team or the CFO or whomever. We, we think that the occupants ought to have access to this as well. So we have a, a wayfinding system that allows you to see in real time which spaces are available, uh, where they are really busy and where they're really quiet. And humans naturally end up load balancing themselves. It's, uh, it's really cool to see. And so your customers are the tenants themselves that are saying, hey, we're uh, we need to see how we're currently operating. And then as we make future real estate decisions, we're putting a density device in our office so that we make the best decision possible going forward. Yeah. So we work with the folks that are in the space. Typically, they are usually permanently deploying density into all of their square feet, sort of all of their doors and all of their open areas and continuously measuring utilization 
as people kind of vote with their feet. Owners are a very interesting category. The incentives are a little bit different and sort of how money works for owners versus tenants is a, is a little bit different. And so I'd say, while well, our primary category is uh, the people that are in the space. I actually think that there's a lot of opportunity in um, helping owners understand their portfolio as well. Well, I was going to ask that. Do, do landlords love y'all or hate y'all at this moment? It, like if we're getting rid of one <laughs> building a day or whatever, as a landlord, am I going, man, they're proving that like half of our building doesn't need to be leased or we have to lease more now because every tenant's now going to take half the amount of space. Like, how do you think about it from that perspective? I'm of two minds here. I, I think half the industry, and this is a total, you know, what is it? 87% of all facts are percentages are made up yeah. uh, on the spot. So this is <laughs> this falls <laughs> potentially into that category. Uh, say half the industry uh, on the owner's side doesn't want to know that they have large-scale unused space. The other half, however, I think is, is very much interested in being able to measure the asset that they have invested so much, so much time, so many, so much time and so many resources into, and that, uh, accept this as an inevitability. There isn't a future in which humans continue to build buildings, but don't measure how they're used. That, that, that is not a future that exists except, I mean, literally humans would have to, um, would have to stop making buildings, have some global catastrophe, unlike a pandemic that actually halts the human race's development, for us to have a future where we don't measure this asset class. It's just a question of when. And it's a question of whether or not you're deploying uh, surveillance technology, you know, camera-based systems, or you're deploying systems that are anonymous at source, like densities. So with owners, I, I actually, I, I think the, the more progressive ones are extremely excited about their ability to say, hey, uh, you know, tenant A, uh, I noticed that you... Very important fact here um, uh, is that for all of the wasted space talk, there is another side of this bell curve, and that's the spaces that are at 168% utilization to target. For every space that's under 1%, there's very much a space on the other side that is way over the uh, intended design. And um, and so I would say the, the thing that's very cool is that there are owners who are, who are really excited to be able to go to a tenant and say, hey, I've noticed that you know your your headcount uh, or the use of the space is growing at like ten percent week over week. Uh, I wanted to get ahead of. I, I know that you're going to run into real estate strategy questions later on, and I wanted you to know I have a number of other buildings that you can maybe look at as you're thinking about expanding. So I, I think it cuts both ways. You know, just like any good tool, it can be used to completely undermine, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the the old guard, um, and it can be used to enable. Uh, that same old guard to to evolve into whatever it means to be an owner of the future. Yep. When you, you just mentioned 168% capacity, is that usually happening when like company A leases, you know, a thousand square feet for five employees, grows to 10, but like doesn't uh, increase their office space? Or how do you get to where you're using it better than intended? Is it? Yeah. Well, I think that the scale, I, I would I would argue that it, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that I would say it's better because I think that the intended design is maybe what is optimal. Um, being over capacity might not actually be better. That might just be uh, maybe on a dollars per square foot or a headcount per square foot kind of basis, but eventually that breaks. And I would say the scale of this is actually more when you're talking about uh, you know, I've got two million square feet of space, and I've got a, I've got zero across fifty cities, seventy buildings, and I've got zero visibility into uh, how all of it is used. Um, knowing that some of those teams are way beyond what we intended for the design of that space allows me to load balance uh, those folks by giving them more space. I mean, I don't know if you've ever ever sort of seen this conversation play out, but. Oftentimes, a head of business of some kind or a head of a, a business unit will will come to the real estate team or workplace team and say, I need you to find me a building. I need you to get me 250 new desks. I need 20 more conference rooms. And the real estate team says, well, okay, sure, but um, are you using the space that you currently have allocated to you? And they'll say, of course I am. It's always full. And because they run a portion of the business, they have sort of the leverage to just, and, and real estate and workplace tends to be a service function. Those are their customers or the, these heads of businesses. Today, that's changing. Today, the 
uh, head of workplace shows up and says, hey, like, uh, I'm happy to support you, but here's what your utilization rates actually look like. And so let's talk about what you actually need as opposed to what you think that you need. It's like going to the gym, right? Like everybody thinks they go to the gym two to three times a week. When in fact, we go to the gym maybe once every six months. And so if you can get beyond anecdote, you can get past politics. And that, that's extremely exciting for a lot of reasons. And I think that that applies both to end tenants as well as owners. So back to being a tenant, how long is the the like data relevant? I'm just, I'm thinking of a density sensor being in my office. Like at some point, do you get so smart that it's like, okay, density has achieved what we needed to achieve or is the re- is the data always relevant even if it's been in the office for years and years now yeah so the only this is a this is a common and very good or important question the only time where we know exactly what will happen at all times meaning you you only need some sample set of data is if the company is never changing which if you look at the vast majority of organizations, uh, it is very rare for companies not to be either growing their headcount or shrinking their headcount. Um, you know, you acquire a new business; those are new folks that become a part of your real estate strategy. And you know, just to give give sort of a sense of scale, like there's an organization we work with. You know, they have a, they have a hundred million square feet of space. They have thousands of leases, and those leases are uh, coming up for renewal or expiration. Uh, every month, they don't all co- co-terminate, you know, January 2nd. And so this team is constantly making decisions based on the strategy of the business on what they should be, how they should be implementing their real estate strategy. So if you have a small office, you know, five, six, 10 people, density is probably not terribly relevant for you unless you just want some cool tech. But if you're dealing with um, anything with a multi-region strategy, anything where you've got uh, maybe more than one building, anything where you've got more than one floor, or you're maybe leasing a number of co-working spaces, or you're just trying to get a handle on what's happening across uh, a rather large space. I'd say above 100 employees, you probably have no idea how they're using space. So what's cool is you deploy the technology, it'll just tell you how people are using space. And then based on how they vote with your feet, you can either redesign it, consolidate, avoid leases you don't need, invest in leases you do, or otherwise make decisions like you would with any other metrics-based system. You know what I mean? It's like, like I'm not, I'm not trying to, 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 I'm not a purveyor of like snake oil here. Like this is how every other system in the world is 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 um is uh is measured. It's just a question of bringing it into the physical world. You're so right. Um, so taking that that hundred million square foot leased company and they have leases that are rolling every day. So if I'm the head of real estate and I've been using density and I have a lease rolling next week, the data that I'm probably looking at is, you know, are we even using this office? Uh, if we're not, is there a place that we could go put all these people in one of our other leases? Or if we are using this really well, you know, maybe we redesign it before we sign the lease. Like you have more leverage on which to negotiate that next lease should you choose to to renew it, or you know exactly where those people should be going if that lease is to terminate. Yeah, I, I also think that like it it doesn't it doesn't all need to be around consolidation. You know, it can also just be you know, you, you can go back to an owner and say, look, this is what my utilization is looking like. Uh, it's pretty clear that the behaviors in Boston are very different than the behaviors in San Francisco. I, I need spaces that are designed for this type of work. This goes back to our previous sort of earlier part of this conversation around what is the purpose of a building? You know, it's it's maybe to, an, maybe to that, that half of the owner's market that's like, I just kind of want to close my eyes and hope that things stay the same. You know, let, let's sort of set that aside for a second. The folks that I think are um, sort of in the other half, their job is to provide spaces that are designed to suit the needs of the buyer, right? Like any other product. And and if that you have better data, if the buyer has better data, if the owner has better data on what those needs are, both sides win. You know, both one. You know, maybe you don't have to re- refab or rehabilitate an old building. Uh, all, all ten floors of an old building. Maybe you only need to do that for for four or five, um, because you know that that's going to be necessary. You're not incurring the the massive capex or whatever it may be that gi- giant loan that you have to to pull out to um, to fund a really large project when you could get the same dollars 
and maybe even higher value dollars per square foot by designing the right space for, you know, HQ2 for Amazon. And so I, I think, and that, that's, a, that's an outlier, but you kind of get my point. It's like, we all should be operating from a data set as opposed to operating from, and I also think, one last point, then I'll stop talking is, I don't, I don't think that humans go away from this. I don't think observation goes away. I don't, I, I, also, I also don't think that anecdote goes away. I just think that it gets, it gets informed. You know, and if you think about garbage in, garbage out, it's like if we can just put better data into those conversations, those conversations will end up still happening. They'll just be better. Yep. It's like the front desk person using this in real time, if they're trying to say like which conference room somebody should go book a meeting in or areas that should be used like in real time, or is this purely kind of let's see the data from yesterday and make good decisions today uh, use cases? Yeah, if you walk, if you were to walk underneath one of our entry sensors or beneath one of our open area sensors and you were holding our mobile application, like you personally, you would see yourself live exit the space. I mean, it's cool. And we're talking latency of about 700 milliseconds. So like less than a second, rate limiters, typically your network, you know, our, our promises are real-time accurate and anonymous. So we we very much believe in real-time data. Now, the most important thing is like, what is that real-time data being used for? Or what is the historical data u- being used to solve? Like, what's the problem that you're trying to tackle? And in an occupant's case, it's predominantly wayfinding. You know, where should I go? Um, where can I go? What's open? What's reserved but unoccupied? What's unoccupied? What's occupied but re- but unreserved? Um, these are all questions that are going to get answered very uh, for the end occupant in a way that feels a lot closer to Yelp and a lot less like. Uh, hey, EA, can you please find a space for me? And the EA then goes and proceeds to kick out a bunch of folks because that's the closest conference room for the executive. You know, it's like there's a better way and it's just by providing some visibility. There's this great quote I remember someone mentioning that as soon as you're a multi-floor tenant, you got two or three floors, you are essentially running a, a distributed team. You're running a remote team. You're just unwilling to admit it. Meaning people are dialing into calls and, conf- and meetings and whatnot from their desk, even though they're, they're a floor or two away from one another. And I, I think that as soon as you uh, wander into the second floor or the third floor away from you, you start to just, humans naturally, start to just not imagine that that is like part of the game space. You know, it's like if there's a conference room up there that's available, cool. But like, I don't know about it. I can only do what I can see, you know, and like what I can see is that that those six conference rooms I typically use are are full, so I'm I'm full up, and that's why the business lead comes back to the head of real estate and says I need more conference rooms. It, it's not because they're trying to be bad actors or or bad use of space or, or prop, pro- propagate bad use of space. It's because they're limited to their field of view, and if you can if you can expand that aperture with with a system that that has permanent, persistent, deeply accurate, doesn't get fatigued field of view, meaning a system like like densities, uh, you can start to affect decisions that are happening elsewhere. So before I get into industry, I, I want to continue down this path a bit. You've, you've seen more data on how space is used probably than anybody in the world at this point. I thought it'd be a fun question just to ask. There's obviously a lot of business owners and landlords that listen to this podcast. Like, What are some of the ways that um, you've seen that we just like totally like consistently businesses miss the mark on like are there some fun data points that you've seen that's just like this is an example of how poorly uh we use space almost across the industry anything like kind of interesting sure yeah so um you know a lot of folks feel like everybody's working remotely um but the the reality is um that that's the that's sort of the lucky few 46 to 48% of Americans have been going back to their place of work over the last year. Um, you know, they, they have been physically showing up to their job. One of the things that was interesting is we were working with an organization that operates nationally. It's about 2 million, I guess about 2 to 3 million square feet of space. And they had teams, they, their organization's hundreds of thousands of employees or over 100,000 employees. They had teams in Florida like demanding to reopen space. And they had teams in um, California demanding to reopen space. And so uh, they did. And 
uh, when they looked at the data, utilization rates were at 1%. And we're talking 1,000-person floors here. Like We're talking like large enough to be really substantial. 1% utilization. And the crazy thing is that the same thing happened on the other, uh, on the other end. They had buildings that were closed, that were not, not open at 38% utilization, 28% utilization. The important thing about both ends of that spectrum is that you've got buildings that are open, that have high variable costs that people have been put, putting dollars into um, that are not being used. And then on the other side, you've got uh, buildings that don't have proper staffing, don't have proper security, don't have uh, you know, cleaning staff and so forth. Uh, and people are still using the space. And so again, it's not about policing. It's just about realizing that this is ha- this was happening before you deployed the sensing system. You know what I mean? Yeah. The sensing system, it's like uh, Schrodinger's <laughs> cat. Like the observa- except the opposite. The observation, the observer is actually not changing the behavior in this case. Instead, the observer is just unearthing something that has always existed, but nothing was sort of listening or observing to be able to show you that it did. Um, and that is happening literally everywhere. I mean... And I'm very excited about sort of these like fun, surprising conclusions that people are going to be able to draw. I mean, people vote with their feet. And I am, I'm more convinced now than I, I probably ever have been that if you, if you just allow, if we think about space as you build space, you design space, you construct space, and then you let folks show up and it's all a hypothesis. And, and then based on what they do, you change the space and then reobserve what they do next that that is the future of all space design. When you say 38% utilization, immediately I'm just thinking, okay, there's 100 offices and only 38 people showed up that day. Like what what does 38% utilization kind of mean? And what does 100% utilization mean? Sure. So when I say, uh, say 28%, you know, you got an office that uh, is at 28% utilized. What I mean is not the buildings are at 28% utilized. I mean that the, uh, I don't mean that the portfolio is 28% utilized. I mean that the, the building itself had a target design of say uh, 675 people and 28%, they're at 28% to target utilization. So 28% of 675. Th- that's what I mean by utilization. So when, when we say, say 41% vacant but paid for, that's uh, 41% is unused, you know, 59% is, is in use, and that's 59% of target design. Sometimes that's of legal capacity, but most often that's target capacity, which is a little bit smaller than legal capacity. And if, if you were drilling it down to like a conference room utilization, if, if it had 12 seats in it and you're saying it's at 20% utilization, it means like on average, there's only call it whatever, two or three people that actually use that conference room over a certain period of time. Exactly. Exactly. And what's really interesting about the pandemic is that you have these new, this new artificial layer of what is a safe capacity. So you've got legal capacity, uh, you've got, you know, your fire wardens care about, then you've got target capacity. That's what your architects and designers care about. Uh, and you're obviously your CFO and then your safe capacity, which is essentially a temporary limit on the number of folks that should be in a space at any given time. And I know you're not an architect, but we, we have this, we had this dilemma in a space we were designing. We're, we're only 25 people, but we wanted to build a conference room that could hold the whole team when we wanted to have team meetings. So is, is what you're probably seeing and thinking about, or, or the, the folks that you're dealing with thinking about is it's not don't build the room. It's build it in a way that it could have multiple different use cases rather than just being that one thing that you might have that team meeting in once a month. Yeah. I mean, I think that you, I think that you nailed it. It's like humans are not, um, humans are pretty adaptable. And if you can figure out how to make adaptable spaces, then they, they will use them. But I, I think that this also can be taken to maybe too much of an extreme. Like I've heard crazy ideas like movable walls, meaning like truly like the walls like move themselves at night based on use. I mean, we could get there, but that, that, that seems uh, like maybe a bridge too far in the next two, three years. But I mean, a lot of the things that were that are that are becoming mainstream now, like what you just described, have been around for a lot of years. I mean, the Action Office by by um, Herman Miller uh, was, I think, in the 1950s or maybe 90, 1960s, and it was the design of the cubicle, and it was actually a brilliant concept. The cubicle was designed to provide focus 
work, um, heads down, focus, work at a desk. And it would have a little seat, like a little, um, which, which then be eventually morphed into or evolved into the, uh, the drawer, you know, the document drawer that you have. Um, that was there so that someone could come and sit down and talk to you. I mean, it was brilliant. It, it was essentially, we know you need focus space and we're going to create what's called the action office, which is going to allow folks to both uh, visit and collaborate, but get heads down focus. Now that, that concept, the action office got bastardized over the, la- over the, over the, the, the pre- preceding or the following um, uh, f- uh, 40, 50 years. We just like got cubicle farms. But its origin, the origin of the cubicle was actually beautiful. I mean, it was an awesome idea. And so um, long story short, this concept of like hybrid work, um, you know, working some days, um, agile workspaces, unassigned seating, hoteling, uh, spaces that are designed for multifunction, uh, seats and desks that are on wheels um, has existed for a long time. In fact, Valve, the gaming, gaming company that makes Steam, which... Uh, Valve also makes a, uh, a game called Half-Life, which is very, very popular. They have had their desks on wheels uh, for, for as long as they've been around, as far as I know. And teams self-assemble. And they literally move their desks to different teams as they're working on different uh, software and gaming products. And you know that is a circumstance in which the office is essentially evolving as, as if it were a product, not as if it were iterating itself, um, not just being this static thing. That was designed once five years ago, and people just kind of live with the outcome. Yep. I wanted to spend the last few minutes just talking about where we are today in a, you know, the the office is a hot topic. I'll I have been a big proponent that the office will be back, uh, probably more than ever. Um, I'm not going to spend time going through my opinions, but you see a lot of data uh, by the day. What is the state of like, say, office, uh, maybe in these really dense areas? Uh, I know the media has one take on it, but when I talk to people, it seems like there's a lot more activity going on. So maybe what's going on in the industry? And then what are some key things you've heard over the last year of what office might look like over the next you know, couple of years as we come out of this uh, pandemic? Well, did you see um, the, the, the Google note about sort of fully supporting distributed work, you know, going forward. I think this was probably nine months ago, maybe a bit longer. Um, You know, we're expanding, we're going to be able to hire from anywhere and we're going to, you know, invest heavily in remote first and all of these things. And we're going to, you know, uh, be really mindful about our real estate. And they retracted, I believe, the vast majority of all those things like three weeks ago or a month ago. I, I think that you know we generally have a tendency to overreact or over rotate on things um, in systems where there's a lot of where's the, where there's a lot of something and space is one of them. There's a lot of space. I mean, more space than anyone actually realizes. If you ask the vast majority of heads of real estate how many square feet they operate, and I know this because we asked this question, half of them will say, "I'm not entirely sure." I mean, and we're talking about the world's most advanced companies here. We're not talking about like asleep at the wheel CFOs and heads of real estate. I mean, these are people that are like engaged, do not know. I, I think McDonald's was like finding that they owned buildings. They, they just randomly found that they owned buildings that they didn't realize they had. The, the space is so big and we've, we, are, we, we have accumulated so much space that um, it's sort of time, you know, it's past time to, that we measure it. But I don't think with any system that large, um, that there is uh, any type of homogenous uh, behavior that will will come out, regardless of the black swan that might be occurring in the macro. So, I don't know that we ever believed that the office was dead. Uh, I think it, I think that you know the headline tends to pull a lot of clicks, but I I, I think everybody knows that the office is uh, here to stay. I, I think it will be different though. I mean, the number of organizations that are willing to adopt many of the trends that have existed and predated the pandemic has gone up uh, exponentially. So, you know, this this concept of uh, working a couple days a week in office is 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 going to happen, and it's going to happen at scale. And for high performers, what's going to happen is the the high performers who work in organizations where they don't provide that flexibility will now have options 
I'm sorry, it's a little bit of noise in the background. Just let me know if it's uh, too much. Um, uh, we'll, we'll have more options to go work and be high performers elsewhere where they do have that type of support. And so historically, that number was small enough that it didn't really matter, didn't really move the needle. But now we're talking like law firms and accountants and uh, technology companies. And it, you know, it's no longer just the purview of architects, designers, and, and tech companies sort of saying, hey, we're going to invest in uh, crazy progressive ideas on, on space. So people are going back to the office. Um, that said, uh, we are still cleaning spaces that have nobody in it. I mean, almost, you know, that number, that 41% waste but paid for, we clean those spaces all around the world. We're cleaning spaces with nobody in it. And I'm saying pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, that that will continue. And it's because we don't have data on actual use. So when, when we talk about utilization and measurement and all that, you know, a lot of stuff around waste and design comes up. But the thing that's really exciting is that all of this is, is um, prelude to what comes next. And what comes next is way more interesting and creative. Let's only clean spaces that get used. That's a really boring one. Let's divert and provide energy based on demand. Let's load balance uh, physical space. Let's move humans into space where there uh, is is not a lot of demand. Uh, if there's too much demand in one area, and, and, and balance out the system. Time based schedules for running trains. Time based schedules. That's a proxy for physical demand uh, for those trains. If you flipped the work week where everyone was working mid, you know, during midnight, those trains would change. They they would the trains would run in the middle of the night, and they'd be really quiet in the middle of the day. And so we use time as a way, as a proxy for uh, physical demand or count. And I, I just think if you just imagine a world, you snap your fingers and you imagine a world that is completely measured, the physical, all physical space knows or is aware of how it's being used in a way that doesn't invade privacy, you're going to have a system that is, is ripe for uh, being better, uh, being substantially more efficient and providing actual value to the occupants that are in the space. So I, I'm extremely excited about the next decade because I think it's a renaissance in real estate. And if you've ever been in this industry, if you've been in this industry long enough, I think you talk to anyone who's been in the industry long enough, they, they will all say uh, some serious shit is happening right now. And it's on the other end going to be, it should be really interesting. Like it's going to be fun to watch. I love it, man. I've been in this industry 17 years and I, I have to say an hour into this episode, I've, I'm already rethinking kind of a lot of prior beliefs about um, how we use space. And we didn't, we don't have to get into that uh, today. We've talked about the office, but going back to where you started in a coffee shop, I would imagine this type of uh, space utilization and information is just as important as entertainment and restaurants and bars and, you know, um, hotels. A lot of these things, uh, you know, kind of emerge. It's as important anywhere as in the office. Is is that a good statement? I am not from corporate office. I'm a student of that segment. Um, I'm not even from real estate. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a technologist, if anything. I, I sometimes like to joke that um, we at Density sometimes like to joke that we're going to start with, we're going to start and end with coffee shops. We're just going to take a detour to corporate offices in the meantime. I, I, I firmly believe that if, if we build, if you build a space, you should measure it. It's just a question of how you solve the distribution problem. And I, I think that corporate offices are an excellent place to begin because for a whole host of reasons, but um uh, not the least of which is uh, you're essentially dealing with organizations where you can sell once and deploy thousands or tens of thousands of times. And I, 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 I don't think that it's an effect that you ask the question, you know, when did you decide to build the business? And I would say the, the business and the go-to-market is, is fundamental to solving the distribution problem. If you don't get pricing right, if you don't get the market approach right, if you don't get the market right, it doesn't really matter. And so I really like offices for a variety of reasons, but our end intent is is all relevant human space. And if we can, and I know it's going to take 20 years, you know, and we're seven in. So I think over the next 13 years, it, it is not inconceivable that the end state of the physical world is that all net new buildings are built with some measurement system baked into the walls themselves. 
um, that all new buildings on the market are aware of its occupants in a way that doesn't invade privacy. And number two, that all older buildings are retrofit to uh, become aware of uh, humans in space. And that both sides of that become uh, substantially better as a result of, of simply getting a baseline. Yep. All right, man. This has been uh, this has been eye opening. I got a lot to think about. H- how can people get in touch uh, with you or your business? Uh, it's pretty easy to guess my email, and I would say otherwise, just um, density.io is our website. Um, so um, that's really a great place to start. Shows off the technology, explains kind of what we do and how we do it. But you know, y- you can always hit me up either through email or Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, and uh, generally, I I I even, you know, I'm biased towards density, obviously, but just like setting aside my, my density hat for a second, like, I'm just really excited about like what's coming for this particular industry. And like, if you simply want to engage in some of those ideas, um, I think you'll find a very ready audience at density. You know, my, my, uh, I'm just one, uh, there are 80, 81 other amazing folks, uh, who have, who have built this stuff and care about this stuff. And, um, yeah. So please feel free to reach out. Thanks so much, Andrew. I really appreciate uh, your time today. This was fascinating. Yeah. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.